This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Hello, I'm David Best, bringing you the Triple Vision podcast, the past, present, and future of Canadian blindness stories that share our experiences. In our last episode, we uh, started exploring the history of education of blind children in Canada. And we started with looking at the residential schools for blind children in Quebec. In this episode, we're going to continue with our exploration of looking at the residential schools for blind children. And in this episode, we're going to talk to a couple of people that attended the Halifax Residential School for Blind Children. So for our first interview, Hannah Levitt interviews Terry Kelly, who attended the Halifax School for the Blind. And following that, Peter Field will interview Robert Mercer, who also attended the Halifax School. So this morning we're talking with Terry Kelly. He was a former student of the Halifax School for the Blind. So welcome to the podcast, Terry. Great to be here, Hannah. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became uh, a student at the Halifax School for the Blind? So I'm originally from St. John's, Newfoundland. I traveled from St. John's to Halifax when I was a kid, uh, when I was seven years old. And then I was spending nine months of the year from you know, from September to June. I was one of the fortunate kids who got home at Christmas time. But um, essentially, I was away from home for nine months of the year. And as a, as a kid, that was, you know, challenging. When I was uh, two years old, I had my second eye removed as a result of um, a hereditary cancer uh, known as retinoblastoma. I was totally blind at that point. I then went into public school for two years, and it didn't seem to work all that well, particularly with the print on the page. And I had some plastic letters that I learned how to print uh, from those. But it came to a point where uh, finally my mom and dad heard about the uh, the School for the Blind in Halifax through the CNIB, a man named Mr. Story. And there began the journey to the School for the Blind, which was an amazing uh, opening for uh, a second chapter to my life, I guess. The, the big thing is that although my mom and dad weren't overprotective, they weren't quite sure what to do with a kid who was totally blind. And, and I had aunts and uncles and cousins and neighbors who were kind of thinking, well, what's going to become of this kid? What a what a shame. And so I get to the school for the blind and none of that was there. And everybody cared, but they knew that as a you know, all the children who are blind or partially sighted, that um they didn't have to feel sorry for us. They didn't have to overprotect us. They weren't worried in the least as long as we had a desire to learn and and get excited about the things that they had to offer us. So, uh, and you know, I was, I was, I was dropped into an environment where 
no big deal. You could dive off diving boards. You could learn to do all sorts of things. Everything from, you know, working in the shop with, with saws and drills and uh, jigsaws and you know every everything any person who could see could do uh, could use. But we learned to do it in an adaptive way. So it was it was it was a beautiful opening to say uh, I can do anything. And it was a mindset that I developed it. I, I like to call that uh, not mindset, but more of a mind sight. And I, I like to say that um, uh, being blind in your mind can be more debilitating than being blind in your eyes. And so I would go home in the summertime at Christmas and I teach my friends how to make wooden stilts so we could walk on them. And <laughs> when they, when they went swimming or they did anything, I already, I was already given the skills to figure out how to do things with them. So I became one of the other kids. And once, um, you know, and aside from a few adaptations, I was like all of them. So you would have been introduced to Braille at this time as well? I'm I'm a user of Braille. I mean, Braille, you know, on the um, refreshable Braille machines, they're, they're, um, um, they're pretty costly in the upkeep of them. Uh, but, but, uh, but I use Braille all the time. I make my own notes uh, to label you know, an envelope or, uh, and one of the, I travel a lot and sometimes I'm on my own without a tech person or whatever, when I'm doing my, my, my work and having Braille on an elevator is incredibly empowering. And uh-huh. then a Braille uh, beside the hotel door, like that is big. Just that those numbers are, are, you know, Cause gives me independence. I, I remember my first Braille experience was when Mr. Story came to our house, our home. And when I was a kid, before I went to the school, he had a Braille slate and he wrote my name in Braille. And he said, here, take this, look at this, Terry, with your fingers. He said, it's going to be very confusing looking. But he said, remember this shape. And he said, this is going to open the world for you. And uh, then I got to the school and, you know, right away, Braille, you know, the Braille alphabet. You know, day one, it all started. And uh, and I did, you know, we had a lovely library at the school and I used Braille. We had a, you know, the big um, Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, so Braille has been a big part of my life. So um, <laughs> as you traveled uh, through your educational journey at the school there, um, so Braille was an important thing. Like, what are some of the other skills that the school taught you that you took to your adult life? Well, the first thing, as I mentioned, was uh, the uh, having better mind sight and, and knowing that if something seemed like it wasn't going to work or if I wasn't at the school where everyone was thinking, well, let's make this work. Let's figure it out. We were taught to be problem solvers, solution builders. So the mindset was the first thing, the, the mind sight. And we, as I mentioned about the shop, you know, we did all those things. We learned how to swim, dive off diving boards, downhill ski, uh, hike. To uh, in, in in the uh, scout program, Cubs and Scouts Adventures, how to light fires, how to cook meals on over a fire, how to navigate through the woods, um, you know, different and 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 how to make it easy to, if you were in the woods, to follow someone else. So as a, as a as a as a boy scout, as a cub, you had this thing called a stave or a staff, and it was uh, five feet six inches long, and um, when the the kids could see. They would kind of just mark each each uh, foot and each inch off. In uh, for us, we would put uh, at, in shop. We would make the the ridge deep enough so we could feel it, and so uh, and that was good for jumping across um, 
uh, streams or holes or, you know, when you're out hiking, you put the pole half. First of all, you reach out, see how far the other, the other um, side of the, of the hole, the trench or whatever it was, figure out where that was. And here's where mindset came in. Again, we learned to visualize uh, distance and, and a, a really a, an acute awareness of, um, sp- of our spatial surroundings. And you try and get a, 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 um, a sense of with the pole by reaching over what's the other bank light? Is it like, is it soft? Is it rocks? Is it slippery? And of course, you'd ha- always have a set of eyes, usually someone with you, so you had a better sense of what's over there. But you could determine a lot with the pole just by by doing that on a regular basis and learning how to use that tool as a, a tool of independence. So when you left um, Halifax, you, you opted to go into the music field. What role did the Halifax School play for you in your musical education? Well, there was music everywhere all the time. I mean, there was a big, beautiful grand piano in the auditorium, and there were probably, oh, 15, well, probably 20 pianos in little practice rooms, and then a, a couple of music teachers. So music was big, and um, we had the opportunity to to learn to to play. And, um, you know, there were, there were choirs where, uh, I mean, very early in the game, we learned how to sing harmonies, four-part harmonies. Uh, music was big. And they, and they had, a, 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 at one point, they, they uh, kind of expanded from uh, just piano to um, uh, trumpet, you know, woodwind, har- uh, uh, brass. And, of course, then at a cert- certain age, the guitars just came out, and uh, we learned from one another. And, and there were a couple of situations where there were actual guitar teachers who would come to show um, you know, those who were interested in doing that. And so little bands formed from that. And when I was 15 or 16, there was a show here in Halifax where they, they um, raised money for children who were less fortunate at Christmas time. And it was, they called it the Christmas daddy show. And uh, so we ended up on that show with our school band called the string busters and uh someone at the time we were playing tra- traditional music like newfoundland music irish music and so on and uh you know uh, maritime uh, traditional music and some there was a gentleman at the newfoundland club in halifax who saw us on the tv show so when i was 15 years old i started making money in the music industry uh and um so th- uh, and then we had a uh, there was a mr fraser at the school who uh, said, okay, let's get these guys learning how to be more professional. So he got a volunteer to come into the school as name as Mr. Mr. Deal, D-E-A-L, Murray Deal, and his dad. And they taught us how to um, uh, dress for the stage, how to, uh, how to have a presence on stage. Uh, from the money we made, we bought a van. Like 16 years old, we had a, a band van. We bought our own equipment. Um, and they, uh, they set it up. So we got paid certain amount every week, but, uh, you know, the, the other portion went to pay for our equipment. And then we, they introduced us to people who were professionals on stage, how to be on stage, how to engage an audience. So we were very fortunate that way. So from a very young age, uh, beyond playing piano in the school or learning instruments in the school, we got a taste of the professional world out there. And some of us went on with it and some of us didn't, but it served us well regardless, you know. 
Hey, Terry, Peter here. You and I had a conversation a few weeks ago, and I, I, I really like to follow up on that for our listeners. Um, the kind of mindset culture, if you want to put that way, or mindset, mindset, mindset that uh, was available to you and other students in the school. You, you've talked about how that served you once you left and getting out into the employment field. And, and you suggest that many people who have gone through residential schools for the blind have actually done very well, if not better than, than other students who didn't have ex that experience. Can you talk about that for a minute? I really think it's unfortunate that there is one school for the blind left in this country. Just incredible. Most states in the U.S. have a school for the blind. Hmm. Uh, the kids still have the opportunity to integrate. Uh, I, I, it's not quite 100% this way. and It depends on the families, depends on the, on the, on the, on the young person. Depends on some teachers and so on, but for the most part, I think uh, if, if if a young person ends up in, a, in just integrated into a, a, a public school, it's not really integration; it's segregation. And uh, it, 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 from an academic perspective, they usually do well, but other things they I, they pay the price by 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 not. And, and it's no blame for any teacher or whatever. It's just because you know, for a phys ed thing, some te uh, phys ed teachers don't know that uh, a young person can run with a guide and do it safely or dive off diving boards or go hiking or all the things that you know, kids do. And itinerant teachers, aren't on the, unless they have a special interest in it, they don't typically teach that. Everyone at, uh, in my, my graduating class and a bunch of years beforehand and, and after who were in that school had the intention of, of getting a job. Even the students who were considered intellectually uh, slower than others, ended up doing something. And that was a mindset, which also, I, I guess that's a lens you can, mm -hmm. uh, your, the mindset is a lens you can see through to uh, improve your mind sight. Mm -hmm. And uh, th these days, uh, and Peter, you and I talked about this as well, they're statistically, they're, they're in, my, in, in my graduating class, probably 90 to 95% of us either went for a job or created their own. And now it's flipped around the other way. The unemployment rate among people who are blind and visually impaired is way up closer to that number. Well, thank you very much, Terry. It's been a really fascinating story to hear from you and, and your journey through uh, education and uh, into music and uh, telling us about the Halifax School. Today, we're gonna to be speaking to Robert Mercer Welcome to Triple Vision, Robert. Thank you very much. Can you just uh, introduce yourself, Robert, for those who don't know you? Yes, that would be fine. Uh, first of all, I've been, I was legally blind since birth. I attended public school, regular school for three, four years. Um, and then I spent nine years at a school for the blind in Halifax. From there, I graduated from St. Mary's University and uh, went into the work-life world after that. Can you tell us about the Halifax School for the Blind, what you were able to find out about that? First of all, the school was opened in 1871, open to four students. Within a period of maybe 30, 40 years, the enrollment at the school had exceeded over 100, 100 mm -hmm. students. I think at the peak of attendance, the school probably housed about 200 children. And I think that's, that would have brought the school into the 1960s, I believe. But the education of blind children really in Canada began at the School for the Blind in Halifax. Uh, 
education of children uh, was universal in this country as early as the uh, maybe 1810, 1815, but uh, uh, it was another 60 years or so before uh, we got around to educating children who were blind. Did um, the school capture um, maybe uh, sort of take in students from across the Maritimes? Yes, and um, one or two students uh, would attend from Quebec. Uh, never quite sure why, but because there were schools, uh, later schools at least in the province of Quebec after the School for the Blind. Uh, one or two students would attend from the Caribbean as well. Uh, mm. And um, But beyond that, uh, um, I think most of the kids who were there were from the Maritimes. Is the school still around? No, the the physical building is gone, the institution, the residence itself, but there is a smaller facility in Halifax, uh, and uh, they house children for shorter periods of time. So if there's a children in, in a community school who needs to learn Braille, they might bring the child into Halifax for a few weeks mm-hmm. and uh, help them with that particular skill and then send them back to their community school. So in that sense, there is still a school, but very different than the School for the Blind. So tell us about your experience at the school, Robert. Um, you were quite young when you started there. Yes, I attended when I was 10. After a very difficult uh, year, years in, in regular school, um, always sort of on the sidelines, never really a part of what was going on in the classroom or on the playground. And it took a uh, a wise teacher, a teacher who was perhaps brave enough to uh, see my parents and just tell them outright that uh, Robert's not learning anything in my class. And uh, as a result of that, uh, he, he's not going to pass his grade three and uh, we won't be accepting him back at the school in the fall. And um, she talked to my parents about the School for the Blind uh, in Halifax, which was 250 miles away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, which back in those days, I mean, there were airplanes, but uh, not too many families could afford flights to Halifax. Uh, so if you went there, you're 250 miles away from home, you were there to stay until Christmas time or, uh, or the summer holidays. And there were no phones. I mean, there was no phone in our family, at least. So uh, you left home in September and you talked to no one from your family until you were home at Christmas time. But what was that transition like for you? I mean, well, it was very difficult. Mostly the, the matter of homesick. I'm a, from, from a family of nine other children and uh, a brother who's a year younger than me. We sort of grew up together. So uh, to have to leave him in particular, and uh, also my other brothers and sisters, it was very difficult. Um, there's that experience of homesick. Uh, in my case, it went on for, I would say, at least a month or so of, uh, at the school, and I always felt at some point I was crying so much that they'd have to send me back home, but of course it didn't happen. Didn't happen, no. Uh, no. <clears throat> and uh, things changed quite dramatically, though, when um, uh, school started on the first Monday that I was there. Um, and I sort of came to the realization that uh, I could learn just like anybody else could learn. Uh, up until then, I, I don't know that anyone ever asked me a question in a classroom. Uh, so I was really... Uh, um, up there, but not there, if you know what I mean. At School for the Blind, I uh, felt like I could see for the first time, if I could put it that way. You were part of things. You were able to participate fully where <clears throat> you Very weren't able so. to do that before. Yeah. That's correct. And, and we, you can't underestimate the importance of that for anybody with, well, anybody generally, but people with disabilities, uh, 
it's one thing to talk about integration, but uh, uh, integration is more than just being in a classroom and having someone there who might fill in and help you when you're not keeping up with something. Uh, integration is a lot more than that. At the School for the Blind, you were part of everything. The School for the Blind in Halifax kind of brought me to life, if I put it that way. It gave me an opportunity to learn. And uh, I just happened to be a good student. I was very uh, studious in that regard. So going to St. Mary's was kind of a natural thing for me. But I won't say that was easy at, at the beginning. I mean, it was back into, if I could put it this way, back into the sighted world where everything is geared to people who see well. Um, so there were a few adjustments, uh, even simple things like uh, finding your classroom, uh, understanding your schedule, mm-hmm. getting used to that kind of thing where for nine years I just responded to a buzz or a, be- or a bell I knew where to be at 9 o'clock and at 10 o'clock and so on. At university, it was a very open environment, of course. Uh, You're not in classes all day long like you were in school. uh, And you sort of have to make your own way. I found found that a little bit difficult at first. But uh, again, you you learn to get along. So how did your time at the School for the Blind prepare you for that? You went from one... Uh, routine to another, but you must have had some skills and abilities to take into that new routine to help you through that transition. Yeah, uh, most of what I what helped me was my uh, my academic standing. I suppose um, I was in the honor society at St. Mary's because of the academic standing of the school that I came from. Uh, we were taught all of the regular subjects that were taught in schools. And in addition to that, we were given all kinds of other uh, useful um, um, exercises. We, we had things like choir and woodworking and, and uh, carpentry. We, we had uh, exercise programs. Uh, in fact, we were in school at School for the Blind. We started at 9 in the morning, and we were in school till 1 o'clock in the afternoon, an hour off for lunch. And then we were back in school from 2 o'clock right through to 6 Oh, I see. Different schedule. Very different. A little bit of time off for supper and a study period from seven to nine in the evening. Mm. Or if not study, uh, at least exercise down in the gym. So it was a a, a very rigorous day. Very structured. Very, very structured. But when I got to St. Mary's, I realized I was ahead of everybody else. Uh, I found, in fact, I I shouldn't put it this way, but the first year at St. Mary's was almost a waste of my time. Um, (laughs) Just catching up, I guess, okay. or um, catching up to where, or are the kids catching up to me, if I could put it that way. Um, but I lived in the residence there, and uh, that, that helped, being on campus. Um, that made a bit of a difference. One other thing about the school, it taught me to be competitive. It taught me to, okay. uh, to be there with other people and realizing that it might not always come first at something, but you could at least give it a good goal. Hi, I just finished reading your book over the long weekend, and I was really impressed with it. As a former student of a residential school for the blind, it brought back a lot of really, really good memories. The way you attended your or started your education, like being a visually impaired kid, you know, child in a regular school system, you kind of started out as an integrated student and went to a school for the blind, really. So you kind of saw uh, the benefits of it that way, right? Yes, very much in, in reverse, I think, for yes, yeah. a lot of children today. 
But I, I was really, you know, every school can teach a set curriculum, you know, and I think from reading your book, parents and, and other students would really see that there is more to school than just a set curriculum. Like when I read stories about your car rallies and, you know, wrestlers coming to, you know, professional wrestlers coming to the school and you getting to, you know, I know when, you know, we were allowed to go to, or we were invited to go to hockey games at Pacific Coliseum and we got to sit in the press box and, you know, we had car rallies and things like that too. And we were just exposed to so much more than I would ever have been exposed to in my rural family life. And I mean, I, I just, I I know for myself that those things just build a lot of confidence and a real sense of belonging too. That I don't I don't think you can copy in a mainstream school. Very very difficult and interesting for me because when I left the school for the blind, I was part of uh, I started an organization called the Blind Rights Action Movement in Halifax. Myself and a few former students, and the first thing we took on was uh, uh, I suppose clamoring. To the press and to the media, well, to the media generally, and to the government about uh, improved conditions for the school for the blind in Halifax, and we were advocating uh, an integrated program rather than children being brought into a residential facility and away from home for so many months at a time. But uh, in hindsight, I don't think I was right about all of that. Uh, anyways, it did result in a lot of change, and I think a lot of good change as well with respect to the education of blind children generally here in the Maritimes. But you're quite correct. It's hard to create a full education uh, platform for young children who are blind in a regular school. You can provide the itinerant teaching. You can watch over and make sure that if you don't understand mathematics, then we can teach you this in a different way or whatever. But all of the other skills, they're very, very, you can't teach people to play football in the, in the backyard when they can't participate well, we played football, and we played baseball, and we played soccer, and we did all kinds of things as blind children that we couldn't have done with uh, children who were sighted, as an example. You know, we changed the rules, and we adapted the game to suit our own circumstance, but those things happened very naturally. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the program today, Robert, and telling us about that. That was a very balanced and very insightful view in terms of residential schools for the blind and I thank you for outlining that for our our listeners, all those pros and cons. Well, that was very interesting. I found it most interesting that there's only one residential school left in Canada for blind children. I'm just wondering if that's an indicator of the trends for schools. Also, I thought it was rather interesting that there seems to be a, a sensitive balance between sending blind children to residential schools where they are away extended period of time from their family and sending them to the community school for the integrated program where quite often they don't get the support they need, especially with the uh, support in developing social skills. Having attended a school for the blind myself, I just feel it was just such a fabulous Um, opportunity to meet other people and to be around peers and I know it's unbearable for a parent to think about sending their child away for months at a time but you know something there's something to be said for learning how to be tough and to be strong I, I know that may sound a little bit of tough love but 
I, I sure learned, and so did all the other students I worked with. We all missed our families, but we had our a different kind of family. So stay tuned. Uh, next time on Triple Vision, we will be speaking with former students of the Jericho Hill School for the Blind in Vancouver, and they'll share with us their experiences at the school. So we look forward to seeing you next time. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer with the assistance of Jacob Schmansky, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Finally, we would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21.